you might not like this, but I think I'm going to ask you to stand. I have a couple of scriptures to read. One is from 1 Samuel, and the other is from the Gospel of John. Let's uh, pray together and ask for the Spirit to inspire us and to feed us this morning. God, we give you thanks for the mystery that somehow and in some way in seasons past you inspired prophets and teachers and that they recorded your word for us for all time. In this time, we bring your word from the past into the present, and we pray for your same spirit to speak to us, to feed us, to make us alive to Jesus the Christ and his way in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. So this first scripture is from 1 Samuel, where we will read uh, the first 13 verses, and uh, this is what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. 
Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. We'll skip forward to the Gospel of John, and we'll just read a few verses there. John 13, 34 to 38. This is Jesus speaking. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Well, this scripture from Samuel tells the story of a change of plans. Specifically, it's a piece of the story where God has to change his plans. God has to change his plans because God is working with people. If you have ever worked with any people yourself, then you know the problem. I mean, you've got difficult people, disgruntled people, dysfunctional people, damaged people, distracted people, destructive people, and with all of that, you've got to try to get something done. It's like the colleague who invites you out for a beverage one evening. You've been working on a project together, a good project, a godly project. And the two of you have gotten close, and it sounds like, you know, getting together on this evening is going to be an evening of chilling out and just chit-chatting, hanging out as friends. And so it is until he tells you the news. And this is what he says. Listen, I'm not going to be able to help you out anymore. I don't even know how I'm going to tell you this, but I'm having an affair with a woman at work. I've told my wife and everything is falling apart. and you're going to have to make some other plans without me. That's how it can go sometimes. People. They can be so confounding 
and so complicated and trying to get anything done through them or with them, well, that can be an extremely difficult thing even for Almighty God. And so it is that our story begins with a change of plans, a change of plans about who will be the king of Israel and who it is that God is choosing to work with now. So the story goes that the prophet Samuel, under the instruction of God, sets out to anoint a new king. When Samuel sees Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, he is taken by what he sees. And he exclaims as he sees Eliab standing there, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here. Here is the new king. It's a no-brainer in his mind. I mean, look at his age. Look at his height. Look at his appearance. But God interrupts uh, Samuel's enthusiasm, and he says, Samuel, no, um, he's not the one. And then God reminds Samuel of the way that God chooses kings, and he says, I'm not looking at his outward appearance, his age, or his size. I'm looking for something inside, because I care about what's in the heart. And so it is that it's not Eliab who has the heart, and it's not Abinadab who has the heart, and not Shammah either who has the heart, And neither is it the fourth son of Jesse who has the heart, or the fifth, or the sixth, or even the seventh. Not a single one of them has the heart that God is looking for. And so we get to the end of that long line, and God says it's a hard no for all seven. And Samuel is left empty-handed with an empty-handed question. And he turns to Jesse and he says, is that all the sons you have? God and his prophet are still looking for a son with some heart, that inner quality required by God. Well, Samuel finds out that there is, in fact, yet one more son, the youngest, and he's brought in from the fields. Now, remember that we are looking for someone with heart. Remember that that's where God looks. God looks inside. And so when David arrives, you would think, and when it would make sense, you would think that someone would say something about David's heart. I mean, he might be the eighth and the last son. He might be on the outside looking in, somewhat neglected as far as his brothers goes. He might be the smallest and youngest, a boy of no importance or credentials or experience, but at least he's got a heart. But no one says anything about David's heart. There's not one single word 
that is said about what is inside of David. <laughs> Instead, confoundingly so, and in complete contradiction to what we've just heard, we are told only about David's outward appearance. Our eyes are drawn to his appearance, and we're asked to imagine how good-looking he is. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. We're told nothing about his heart. And all we're told is how good-looking he is. That David is pure eye candy. <laughs> the Bible is hinting at something here. The Bible is indicating to us that this is going to be a complicated thing. And David is going to be a complicated man. And this is not going to be as straightforward and as cut and dried and as wonderful and cheery as you might think. And even though the Holy Spirit comes upon David from this day on, there will be a time coming too when we will find the great King David on his knees in repentant sweat. And with the beauty of Bathsheba's body still in his mind and the stink of Uriah's blood on his hands, we will find David on his knees begging God, begging God for a pure heart and a steadfast spirit, pleading that the Holy Spirit would not be taken from him. For David will make a colossal mess of things. He will ruin and hurt more life than one. <laughs> oh, yes. David will be a complicated man. And being his God, <laughs> that will be a complicated thing. So the Bible here appears to be telling us precisely that. This is going to be a complicated story. Life is complicated. People are complicated. And therefore, God's ways in this world have no choice, but they must be complicated too. In the Scripture, there are at least four complications, and the first is the one that we've already heard, this contradiction between what God is looking for, you know, something in the heart, and what we're told about David focusing on his outward appearance. The second complication of this Scripture is that this Scripture carries the memory of King Saul. In fact, that's where it begins, with the memory of King Saul. God has changed his plans about King Saul, and he wants to replace Saul with David. 
Now, all of that is well and good, I suppose, except that at one time, both the prophet and his God were pretty certain about Saul. It was Samuel who, not too long ago, said to all the people, Did you see the the, the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. We are even told how Saul was filled with the Spirit. We are told how impressive he looked, that he was without equal, a head taller than anyone else. Saul was, in other words, God's perfect choice, the Connor McDavid of kings to be anointed. But that perfect choice falls apart. And Saul is eventually rejected as king. And you're left wondering, you know, how God and his prophet could be so wrong in their choice. It's complicated. The third complication has to do with this whole business of anointing kings in the first place. David is going to be the second king anointed after the first, who is King Saul. The second king anointed by God and his prophet. But if you recall that story at all, then you know that at one time, God and his prophet were both initially opposed to the idea of anointing kings altogether. In the mind of God, in the mind of the prophet, is just a bad idea. But eventually, the two, God and his prophet, uh, concede to the demands of the people to be like the nations around them. And so that's why we have here God and Samuel anointing kings. But you have to wonder, too, why did they give in? Why didn't they just tell the people that's a hard no? It's complicated. And then there's the fourth complication, and that's the way that God basically asks his prophet to go and to lie, (laughs) to break one of his commandments and to be deceptive. God asks Samuel to commit treason. This is why the elders are so upset when he's there. And so it is that it appears that uh, in God's playbook... The end justifies the means. It's complicated. This is a scripture that, when you look at it closely, reveals complication and contradiction and layers of difficulty. And what we get here is a picture of a God who has to maneuver and weave and wind his purposes and goodness and plans and grace in and through and around and sometimes with and sometimes against all the complications that complicated human beings can bring. It's like God in the midst of all of human life, is constantly looking for and trying to find a path 
through that complicated maze and puzzle, you know, working through all that human stuff, trying to work his way of goodness. Because you see, the truth is that God has to work with what God has got. And what God has got is people. And with people, there's always going to be a problem. You know, it's like we say, people are people. God always has to do His work in and through and around and with and despite human weakness and failure. But that is the true genius of God's providential and hidden work. God's providential and hidden work is as flexible and as adaptable and changeable and you could even say complicated as we are complicated. God has always had to work through weak and complicated human partners. God has always had to work through weak and complicated churches, through weak and complicated denominations, through weak and complicated leaders, through weak and complicated followers. And the wonder of it all is that weak and complicated and sometimes deeply flawed people and institutions and churches have never undone the goodness of God. All that human complication has never undone the goodness of God. More than a decade ago, back in 2010, I spent 40 days at a retreat center in Guelph, Ontario. It was an extended period of time for silence, prayer, self-reflection, and sabbatical rest. And for a period of time during those 40 days, I became aware of the people that I was still angry with. People who had failed me. People who were supposed to be there for me but had walked away. People who had betrayed me, abandoned me, hurt me, and in some cases even attacked me. And I would sit and pray in the chapel, and I would sit and pray my anger and my injustice, and it felt to me that I just couldn't get past the people and my pain. And when I was done praying in the chapel, I would look up, and there in the front of the chapel, there was this grand and beautiful depiction of the Last Supper, and there was Jesus with his 12 disciples, not 10 disciples, but his 12 disciples, including Peter. And I found it to be so confounding and troublesome that Peter was there too at the table. 
Peter, who so heartlessly and callously disowned Jesus. Peter, who said, and you think about how this may have affected Jesus. Peter, who said, I don't even know the man. I don't even know the man. That must have cut a knife into Jesus' heart. And I found it so confounding that Peter was still there and that Jesus included him in his love and that Jesus would love him to the end and that Jesus' love and goodness and grace and purpose, all of that was undiminished and undeterred by Peter's complications. It strikes me as being so confounding and puzzling and convoluted. It doesn't really make sense. The grandeur, the magnificence of Jesus' love, the immensity of Peter's disowning him, and the matter of God's hidden work of goodness through it all. And what all of that tells us is that what we are seeing and experiencing on the outside, what we are seeing and experiencing on the outside as far as people and their complications go, what we are seeing and experiencing on the outside is absolutely no indication of what God is up to. or whether or not God is there and at work. And all of this can be said of David too. What we see on the outside has absolutely nothing to do or is absolutely no indication of what God is up to. The complications for David are sure to come. But these complications cannot and do not derail the purposes and the love and the goodness of God. For God will continue to weave God's way and God's work through it all. When I was on that retreat... One day, I was looking out the window, and uh, there, just outside my window, was this apple tree. The apple tree was in full bloom, and as you can see, it was a wonder and a beauty. But what you don't see is that all around that tree, um, there was growing a seed of weeds. Oh a seed of dandelions. And one afternoon, I told my spiritual director this. I told him about this tree that I had seen and about how it was surrounded by these weeds. And he said to me something that has stayed with me ever since. He said, it's a wonder, Ron, 
The beauty of the tree is undiminished by the weeds. The beauty of the tree is undiminished by the weeds. The beauty and the goodness of the tree remain intact. And I suppose that's another way of saying that the good and beautiful purposes of God are undiminished by human complications. And so when things go south with people and their complications, we must be very careful about the judgments we make and the conclusions that we draw. Let us be careful about giving up on people and even more so careful about giving up on God. Let us be careful about giving up on God's good purposes in this complicated world. And let us remember today David after all of that, let us remember David as a man after God's own heart. And let us remember Peter, who said, Lord, you know that I love you. And let us remember Jesus, who replied, feed my sheep. Let's carry on with the goodness and grace of God in this world. And finally, let us remember that what matters most in this world is the good heart of God. Let me lead you in a prayer. And in this moment, I just ask you to gather into your own heart and mind what it is that you need to hear and receive and take with you. Lord, hear the prayers of your people through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.